How many read ahead? Oh, all right. Awesome. So we're in chapter 20. Very good, very good. As you read ahead, no doubt you discovered what we call the Ten Commandments, right? What do you suppose is probably the most well-known passage in the Old Testament? The Ten Commandments. Even if you just have a, just a cursory overview, just a vague understanding of the Old Testament, most people know that probably the most celebrated passage would be the Ten Commandments. It's located in a couple of places, obviously here in chapter 20 of the book of Exodus and in the book of Deuteronomy. Who knows what chapter in the book of Deuteronomy? Yes, Pauline? Chapter 5, very good. Okay, so you can see the parallel passage in chapter 5 of Deuteronomy. So we revisit that when we get to Deuteronomy uh, sometime in the future. Yes. How many, uh, how many believe that the, uh, that the Ten Commandments are still binding? God still requires us to obey them. Not everybody believes that. Let's try that again. How many believe that the Ten Commandments are binding? Does God intend those commands to be obeyed? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. He certainly does. They're His Word. His Word is eternal. Who can recite all ten? In order. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. That's not bad, seven. You know, um, in a Gallup, Gallup poll... Uh, a few years ago, 85% of Americans said they believed that the Ten Commandments were binding. But only 15% could remember five of the Ten Commandments. Is there a disparity there? Huge disparity. If those statistics are true, if they, those statistics are accurate, then only one out of every six people who say they believe in the Ten Commandments can even name half of them. And if 15% can name only five out of the ten, just think how many even know where they are in the Bible. Uh, I'm going to suggest to you that many in the church are woefully ignorant of not just the Ten Commandments, they're woefully ignorant of the Scriptures in general. Would you agree? People just aren't reading their Bibles. They're not reading their Bibles to learn their Bibles. They're... They may read devotionally, um, but the challenge is that we need to read God's Word to get to know God's Word. The Ten Commandments uh, give us, if you will, a moral compass. We live in a culture that has lost its moral compass. We live in a culture that has no real sense of, of moral direction and purpose and orientation. We live in a time uh, when the dominant philosophy is moral relativism. Relativism just simply means that uh, there's no, people don't believe in a right and wrong. They do not believe in, in a, uh, uh, a set of absolutes. Absolutes, absolute truth. This is right, this is wrong. And that's what the Ten Commandments give us. They give us uh, absolutes. They're a ruler by which you can determine 
and judge your life, your attitudes, your behavior, and so forth. It's a standard. And so we live in a day of moral relativism. And that stemmed from early in the 20th century, a number of causes, but one particularly. Uh, how many know the name Albert Einstein? Einstein was a brilliant man, uh, responsible for the theory of relativity. And the theory of relativity just said that there's a, a, he discovered a relationship between um, time and space. But as he did that, a belief took hold that was an erroneous belief, an offshoot of the discovery of relativity. And the belief that took hold was that there were no longer any moral absolutes of good and evil. Mistakenly, relativity became confused with relativism. Just because the terms sound correct, sound right, they're similar, doesn't mean they mean the same thing. And so what happened is people actually believed that moral relativism uh, had a scientific basis and was proved by Einstein. They confused relativism with relativity. And no one was more distressed about this than Einstein himself when he discovered uh, what the philosophical movement of the day and, and how it had launched off of his uh, scientific discovery, uh, he was terrifically distressed. Uh, he passionately believed in moral absolutes. He passionately believed in right and wrong. Uh, when you listen to his, co his quotes and read his writings, in fact, he believed that moral relativism was a spiritual disease. And in his lifetime, he saw relativism come to dominate culture and society through three principal intellectuals, all atheists, Freud, uh, Marx, and Nietzsche. And uh, today, as a result of the ignorance of believers and as a result of the growing emphasis of relativism, um, we have a colossal uh, ethical crisis in our country today, in our land, it afflicts our society from top to bottom, uh, every place. It is absolutely a tragedy. Many people today are wandering around in literally a moral, ethical fog. They just do not, they, they, they just don't know. They, they're, they're clueless, and they're will, unwilling to take a stand on what is absolutely right. And uh, they're confused about what's right, they're confused about what's wrong, because simply they have no moral compass. And this is what the Ten Commandments provides. It provides a moral compass. Now Jesus is going to expand on those commandments when he, when he teaches through the New Testament. But, but it starts right there. Uh, many of you, no doubt, have heard of the, uh, the guru of ABC News, Ted Koppel. And Ted Koppel was quoted, and this is a marvelous quote from him. He said, our society finds truth too strong a medicine to digest undiluted. We can't handle truth. This is, this is from one of the noted liberals in our culture, in the, in the news media, he says, our society can't handle the truth. We have to dilute it. It reminds me of Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 when he says a day will come uh, when men will not be able to tolerate sound doctrine. They're only going to want to have their ears tickled. Just, just tell me what's easy, what I can easily receive and digest. Don't make me think too much. Don't challenge me. Make me feel good. Rub my tummy. He goes on to say, in its purest form, 
Truth is not a polite tap on the shoulder. It's a howling reproach. Think of that. Just listen to those words. Truth is a howling reproach. Truth is a howling reproach to, to the culture, to, to individual lives, because it, 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 it slams us in the face. And then he says, when Moses walked down from Mount Sinai, he brought the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. This is from Ted Koppel, of all people. Isn't that amazing? So the point is, is the Ten Commandments play a significant role. Uh, because they're in the Old Testament, a lot of times people in church today, uh, they say, well, we just, we just want to study the New Testament. Uh, this book stands as a whole, doesn't it? That's why we're studying through the Old Testament. So we have a strong foundation for the new and to understand uh, how the new fulfills the old. So the Ten Commandments are substantial. And as I suggested last week to you, we are going to study them one commandment a week. And this morning we're going to deal with the very first commandment. Aren't you excited? You say, what could he possibly say in two hours about the first commandment? (laughs) You know, I have much to say. There are two very pressing questions in life. The first one, does God exist? Does God exist? The second question is, if he does exist, what is he like? Those are substantial, significant questions. And assuming that you believe there is a God and you want to know what he's like, that immediately, considering those two, we must ask a third question. And the third question is, if there is God, I want to find out what he's like, but even more importantly, I want to find out what he wants. What does God expect of me? What does God expect of me? And the first commandment is going to answer those three questions for us. The first commandment will address those three questions. Now, the setting of the Ten Commandments back in chapter 19, I think you agree, was without parallel. That setting was awesome, wasn't it? Here's, uh, here's the, the whole nation of Israel on the plain of Sinai before the mountains of Sinai, which those mountains rise about 4,500 feet above sea level, with Mount Sinai itself, a plateau, rising above the mountains of Sinai. It's an imposing sight. And here, the Mount, the Mount Sinai itself is covered with smoke. The people are on the floor of the desert there, looking up. This is the place where God is going to reveal himself. This is the place where God is going to reveal what he expects. And his, the revelation is going to be accompanied by thunder, by lightning, by smoke, by fire, by a deafening trumpet boss that reduces everybody to trembling. And indeed, we're told in chapter 19, the mountain itself trembles. Imagine yourself there. The ground shaking under your feet. It's pitch black out there in the desert, except for the flashes of lightning and the thunder, and the fire and smoke on top of that mountain, and heavenly shofars blowing louder and louder and louder. Tremendous, awesome, awesome experience. God's revealing himself. Moses speaks, and God answers him with a voice like thunder. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. What a moment. That first commandment is so important. It's the primary commandment. You cannot move on to the other nine until you get a solid grasp of the first one. And hence, we're going to talk about the first one this morning. Who is God? Who is God? You know, you can't really get to know somebody until first you get to know their name. Isn't that true? Once you get to know a person's name, uh, then you're on your way to knowing something about that person. And so in verse 1, God reveals his name. The original Hebrew language spelled God's name with four consonants, Y-H-W-H. So if you could read the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew language, that's how God's name would be, would be uh, articulated in those passages. There are no vowels in the original Hebrew, only 22 consonants. That's why his name is given in those four consonants. Those four consonants, Y-H-W-H, appear over 6,000 times in the Old Testament. Hebrew is a very challenging language. Um, studying it, uh, I, I recall a time when um, I was in the library and seminary and one of my co-students was studying in his Hebrew Bible and was having a terrible time translating a passage and uh, struggling, struggling, struggling. See, Hebrew is such a, such a, a uh, um, challenging language, and it's, the way it's written, when you look at the Hebrew Bible, uh, it, it, it looks like chickens walk, got their feet in ink and walked all over the page. And it, it looks the same whether it's upside down or right side up. And, and so the other student was struggling with translating from the Hebrew into English and having such a hard time. And a couple of us looked over and said, well, you have it upside down. <laughs> it's, very, very, it's very, very confusing. Which you don't know what you're doing if you're not sure about what you're doing. I say all that to say this. We are unsure about the exact pronunciation of Y-H-W-H. No one knows for sure. Our best guess, our best understanding of that uh, is the pronunciation Yahweh. Y-A-H-W-A-Y. You see, the Hebrews never spoke the name of God. They considered the name so holy because God was holy. His name was holy. So they would never speak his name for fear of mispronouncing it. And if they mispronounced it, they would consider that blasphemy for which the punishment was stoning. It was death. So they wanted to hold God in high esteem, and hence they would not pronounce his name. So we don't really know how his name was actually pronounced in the Hebrew. So when they did address his name, and when they did pronounce his name, they substituted another Hebrew word, Adonai. We sang that song, Alan led us earlier in the song, to Adonai. Adonai means simply translated Lord. So every time you see the word Lord in the Old Testament, it is the Hebrew word Adonai, but it is actually uh, the translation uh, Y-H-W-H. So every time you see Lord in the Old Testament, it is 
uh, really Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, if you will. Another name for God is Jehovah. How many have heard that name? Jehovah. This comes from the German translation. I say this because sometimes there's some confusion. There are some people who say, oh, no, no, you must always, his name is Jehovah. And they don't really understand the derivation of the name Jehovah. It comes from the German translation. Uh, in German, the Y is a J sound, Yah. Yah, right? <laughs> yah. And a W is a V sound. And so if you put those together, uh, the Germanized translation of Yahweh is Jehovah. So God's German name, we could say, is Jehovah. His Hebrew name would be Yahweh. All right. There's another interesting aspect of the Hebrew language that uh, it doesn't share our concept in English of tenses. The Hebrew language doesn't have uh, separate tenses like we do, uh, present, past, future tenses. It's very unique in that sense. And in Hebrew, so when God says, I am Yahweh, he's not limiting himself to time and to space. He was saying, I've always been, I am right now, and I always will be. So his name, when he reveals his name, he says, in effect, I am being. I'm the very essence of being. I am. Remember when he appeared to Moses, Moses said, who shall I say sent me? He said, tell him, I am sent you. I am that I am. I, I always was, I, I always am, and I always will be. So uh, Hebrew doesn't translate it well into tenses, and so um, this is important to understand. There has never been a time when God was not being. He always, always is. So God not only identifies himself, he tells them his name, they begin to understand what his name means, but now he also reveals something about who he is and what he does. He is the one who is shaping the circumstances of the Israelites to draw them to himself. In verse 2, he says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He's telling the Israelites that it was he who had been shaping their circumstances, the circumstances of their very lives, to bring them to the point where he would reveal himself to them. God is always working, always shaping the circumstances of our life. He tells us the very, very same thing. He does this, this in our life. He says to us, I brought you to this point in your life. I'm at work in your life. I brought you here so that you can know me. I brought you here so that I can be all that you need in your life. Think about that. Does God want to be all that we need in our life? Can he be all that we need in our life? Absolutely. But the reality is, is we don't always think about that. We don't think, I need God plus something. I need God and. I need God and. Rather than, I just need God in my life. And if I have God in my life, he provides everything else that he knows I need. Does that make sense? This is a very, very, very important thing. This is the lesson that Israelites must learn. Does God know they need water? Does God know they need food? Does he provide it? Absolutely. Now they want it, they want it when they want it. So when they don't get it, they're grumbling, aren't they? 
By the way, have we, have we ceased grumbling? Some still grumbling. He knows they need safety from attack. He allows the Amalekites to attack them, but he, he rescues them. God knows everything about our life. He wants us to realize that all we truly need is him. This is a challenge for us. You didn't arrive here. God says you didn't arrive here by accident. Your presence here is not incidental. It's intentional. It's intentional. I always tell people, I say, you know, you're not here by accident. You're here because God's design is, is that you be here. I don't know what he's doing in your life, except in terms of particulars, but I know that he's doing some great things. He's brought you here because he wants you here. It's intentional. You say, oh, I, I, just, I, just, I, just, I just decided to come. I just, I just get, got up this morning and drove to church, and I just thought I'd be here today. I know you did. But you're here because God intended you to be here. Well, how can that be? I decided to. Yes, you did, but God did too. How's that work? I don't know. No one knows. Those are those things we hold in tension. Both are true. I decided, God decided. God decided that I should decide. I don't know how it works. But in hindsight, we look back at our life and we can see, right? We can see God's hand in our life, God's movement, things he's done, arrangements, situations, circumstances, all that he's done to shape our circumstances to bring us to the point where his purpose can be served and his purpose is to conform us to the image of his son. That's what God's doing. He says, not only do I seek your fellowship, I'll shape your circumstances so that you can know me and we can have that fellowship. Isn't that glorious? We see him doing it in the life of Israel. Everything that happens to them, he's shaping, working, bringing them along to this point now at the, at the base of Mount Sinai where he's going to give them his word, he's going to give them their identity, and he's going to give them a destiny. The same principles hold true in our life. Psalm 53, verse 1, says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. Sometimes we mistakenly think the word fool means someone who is intellectually deficient. The word in Hebrew is nabal. If you transliterate it, you do so as N-A-B-A-L. A nabal is someone who is morally deficient and chooses to live an immoral, empty life. That's what a fool is. We see people who say, what a fool, because we see them making foolish choices. They know better. You're a fool. What are you doing? The fool doesn't say, I have intellectual hang-ups about the possibility of God, therefore he doesn't exist. No, according to Psalm 53, 1, the fool is actually saying, I don't want any God. No God for me, thank you. That's the fool. The Bible says a fool is confronted with God's offer and says, no thank you, no thank you, not interested, no God for me. That's a fool. God's offer is available to everyone. He gives us a chance. 
And he gives us a choice about accepting his offer. Isn't that marvelous? Whosoever will come. Whosoever will believe. All the whosoever's in the New Testament. God gives us a choice. He opens the door. He presents himself to us. That is the most profound discovery anyone could ever make. Think about this. That God exists. That he loves you and wants a relationship with you. What a discovery. What what an immense discovery. The God who created the universe loves you and wants a relationship with you. He opens the door. He gives you a choice. He says, come on in. Let's have fellowship. Let me fill your life. I'm the creator. I know how life best works. Let me have, have my way in your life. Now, when you think about it, you'd have to be an absolute fool not to accept that. I mean, if you're already in, if you're already in the court, you say, all right, I believe there's a God. Okay. And I'll give you the fact that he's probably good. I don't understand everything. But what does he want? He wants to be in my life. I'd be crazy not to let him in. Does that make sense to anybody? So he's revealed who he is. He's revealed his name to us. He's told us what he's like. And thirdly, he tells us what he wants. The very first thing he says is, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, in the Old Testament culture... In the ancient Near East, we know uh, that all these nations, and more particularly Egypt, out of which Israel has just come just a few months prior to this, uh, they had their pantheon of false gods, idols. All these nations were involved in idolatry. So we might read this and just think simply that God is referring to the pagan gods of the ancient world. You have no of these, none of these pagan gods before me. And so we might easily think that we're safe because we don't worship these ancient pagan gods. We're, after all, modern, sophisticated culture. We don't bow down before idols. Right? But it's not just the idol, it's idolatry. He's really addressing the whole issue of idolatry. See, idolatry is much more than just worshiping statues or images of ancient pagan gods. A God is anything or anybody that orders your life. Think about that. A God is anything or anybody that orders your life. Whatever whatever is ordering your life, that's your God. That's what you serve. Because that's the direction your life is going to take. Whatever philosophy you follow, that's your God. That's what orders your life. Whatever your belief system, that's what the God is. For some people, their God is simply their job. I talked to a man last night who, a good man, good family man, loves his family, but his God, it just dawned on him last night, his God has been his job. And he had every reason because he wanted supply for his family. He wanted his family to have a secure future. He wanted to have money in the bank. He wanted to be able to put his kids through college. And so he's thinking ahead. But his job began to consume him. His job occupied the majority of his attention, the majority of his time, and the majority of his effort. And he was wondering why he's having trouble with his kids. 
His job was his God. For some people, their hobby has become their God. And a hobby starts out very innocently. It's a distraction. It's uh, something just to occupy some extra time. It's a point of relaxation. But some people, those hobbies begin to consume their life. Much like a job. Some people have even made their family their God. That's possible. Now, God loves families, and he wants our families to love him, but it is possible to substitute something as noble as a family for the living God. And there are people who do that. What's well, my family. My family comes first. My family comes first. And in, and in effect, God just gets paid lip service to because the family now has become the substitute God. And, and we could go on and on. There are any number of things that can be identified as gods in our lives. Um, the biggest one is ourself. Paul writes in Romans 1 that when man turns from worshiping the true God, the first thing he turns to is himself. We have a cult of self in our culture today. It's all about me. It's all about what I want. Uh, we have a whole industry uh, built up uh, just to make us beautiful people. Billions of dollars are spent. And uh, we worship ourselves. Uh, we worship money. We worship success. Uh, we're driven for these things. Uh, I've talked with a family this week who uh, they, uh, they are uh, obsessed with uh, a, a newer, bigger, more luxurious house. And, and the bottom line is, when we talk about it, they, they don't actually need a bigger, more luxurious house. They want a bigger, more luxurious house. Now, is that that they can't have it? No. But it depends upon how much that's consumed their life. Obsessing them. Every thought is on this house. Possessions. Success. Power. Sex. Technology. The computer. Computers taken over lives unbelievably so. Computer is a wonderful tool. But it's become a god to some people because their, their life is consumed with it. Uh, television. Same thing. Wonderful, wonderful gift to us, but it can take over one's life. It can become your god. Food. For many people, food is their god. Um, leisure. All I think about is leisure. Leisure. What am I doing with my leisure time? And I just, just leave me alone. I just, want, I just want to be all by myself. No. Do you see how the, all these things, in and of themselves, uh, amoral, can become a source of great difficulty and, in fact, can become gods in our lives? The list goes on and on and on, doesn't it? We can continue to list these things. So the question is, how do I find my God? Because all of us battle it. None of us are free from this. It's a continual life battle. So the question is, where I'm, where I'm at right now, how do I find my God? I've given you a test in your notes. A simple, call it the T-test. Okay? You ask yourself these four questions. This will help you discover what or who your God really is, despite your profession. First question, what do I think about the most? What do I think about the most? What's always on my mind? 
Second question, what do I talk about the most? Third question, where do I invest my treasure? And fourth question, where do I spend my time? What do I think about? What do I talk about? Where do I invest my my time, my treasure? You see, when you can identify the answers to those questions and you'll be intellectually honest, you've just identified your God. You've just identified the thing that is the idol in your life. And there's not a single one of us that is immune from this. Trust me. And if you think you're immune from it, um, come talk to me after the service. (laughs) See, if your God is not Yahweh, then you are violating the first commandment. And if you're violating the first commandment, you cannot even move on to the next nine. We've got to settle the first one. We've got to come to grips with the first one. Each one of us has to, has to come and, and, and repent, if you will, of our own personal idolatry. God says, I will not tolerate any rival gods. This is primary command. It's about him. And that command, by the way, as you read it, it, it is couched in, if you will, negative terms. I want to couch it in a positive spin. I want to put a positive spin on that command. How do we do that? Well, if we're to put it in a positive note, then we ought to seek God earnestly, sincerely, and seek to let him be our only God. Jeremiah puts it very succinctly in chapter 29, verse 13. Jeremiah says, You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with part of your heart. Is that right? No, he says, You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with your what? Whole heart. There's the issue right there. Ask yourself this question. Do I seek him with my whole heart? Most people, quite frankly, are seeking him half-heartedly. When we, re- when we get to this passage of talking about Saul and the Saul, comparison between Saul and David uh, later on in, in 1 and 2 Samuel, uh, you'll see God, God pronounces on David, here's a man who sought me with his whole heart. As a comparison to Saul, Saul, Saul sought me half-heartedly. There are many people today who are seeking God half-heartedly. They're seeking God passively. Not actively, not, not vigorously. They're seeking God with a take-it-or-leave-it attitude. Eh. No big deal. There are people today who just simply uh, show up for church only occasionally. No big deal. Church isn't important. Um, associating with God's people, not important. There are people today who um, not just show up occasionally, but they're always late. There are people today who only read their Bible occasionally or pray occasionally. Things that are indicative of a relationship and pursuit of a relationship with God with a whole heart. And if we don't apply ourselves if we don't earnestly seek God, then we are tempted to conclude 
that this relationship with God doesn't work. You've all heard people say, I tried Jesus, it didn't work. It didn't work for me. And my retort to those situations is always, you tried Jesus? You have to devote yourself to him. You know what happens when a person just tries marriage. Well, I tried marriage. It just didn't work for me. You don't just try marriage. You invest yourself with everything you have, with everything you are. And this relationship with God is the same thing. We invest ourselves with everything we have and everything we are. He says, I don't want any other gods in your life. Am I making sense? People say, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't have the joy of God. I, I, don't, I don't know his peace. I, I hear about this. I, I'm not experiencing the blessings of God. Blessings of God don't always automatically translate to a, uh, an easy way in life. Do you know that, right? The blessings of God are the grace and strength and peace and joy he gives you in spite of the difficulties and the trials you go through. And again, people will say, you know, I, I, but I read my Bible and I'm praying and I'm, I'm miserable still. I'm, I'm not happy and the people around me are not happy. All I can say is, is, is God truly number one in your life? Is he truly number one in your life? He wants to be everything and all that I need. In order to experience those blessings... You have to seek him exclusively. Write that word down, exclusively. How many know what it means to be distracted? Distracted by the relationship you're in. Distracted by your spouse, what your spouse... I had a woman call me this week, just frantic about her husband. He is not a godly man. He's not being the spiritual leader. I'm fed up. I'm about ready to leave. I said, why are you so frantic? Well, but you don't understand. I know. Why are you so frantic? Where is your focus? Where's your focus? Are you seeking God exclusively? Or... Are you focused on your husband? Focus on what he is or isn't doing. That's consuming you. Your husband is your God. He's determined the whole course of your thinking, your attitude, your life, everything. Yeah, but somebody... What do I... I said, he's in God's hands. God is quite capable, trust me, of taking care of your husband. Your part is to seek him with all your heart, all your heart, all your heart, you seek him. Does he know what you need? Does he know what your husband needs? Yes. You seek him. God's quite capable of taking care of your husband. 
And trust me, he will. But if you're to experience the blessings of God, the joy and the peace, the fulfillment, the, the, the wonder of God in your life, you have, to, you have to seek him exclusively. There's room for only one God in your life. Not two, not three, not four. So I said, who is number one for you? Who is number one for you? Do you know that the number one is a number different from every other number? It's different in terms, it's, it's uniqueness, number one. A man who has one wife is in a very, really different category from a man who has two wives, three wives, five wives, 20 wives, 30 wives, or like Solomon, a thousand wives. You see, the difference between one and two, it seems on the surface very insignificant. There's hardly any difference. The difference between one and two is a giant leap compared to the step between two and two million. It's not just a difference in degree. It's a difference in type. Huge difference. A man with only one wife is a monogamist. A man with two wives, 20 wives, 1,000 wives is a polygamist. Big difference between the two, would you agree? Think about this in relationship to God. It doesn't matter if you have two gods or 200 gods or 2,000 gods. You're a polytheist. Having only one god is the fundamental difference. This is what was to make Israel different from all the nations around them. They had one god. I remember reading an interview in Sports Illustrated a few years ago with Emmett Smith. Emmett Smith, if those of you don't know, is a football player. Uh, star running back at that time for the Dallas Cowboys. And uh, he was asked in this article, I thought it was interesting, to share his priorities for that year. And so he listed his priorities in this order. Number one, he said, uh, his top priority was to keep Jesus Christ number one in his life. Number two was to win another Super Bowl. Number three was to stay healthy. Number four was to win the rushing title again. And number five was to be named to the Pro Bowl. As I read that, my initial reaction was, wow, that is really cool. Emmett Smith. Emmett Smith has Jesus number one in his life above everything else. Wow. But something was unsettled in me about that. I thought, hmm. When you think about it, there's a real danger in that attitude. You say, well, Jesus is number one. He wants Jesus. What's, what's the danger in that attitude? You see, God refuses to be number one on any list of any kind. Think about that. Why? Why do we dare not put God number one on a list of anything? Because even when we do that and we make him number one first on our list, we, in effect, degrade him by comparing him with any of those other things on that list. God is in a class totally by himself. You don't put him on a list. 
It's that simple. It sounds innocuous. It sounds, well, that seems okay to put, make him number one on my list of priorities. And we talk about this. Is God number one priority in your life? And, and we automatically translate in our mind to our list of priorities. God first, thus second, this third, this fourth. No, no, God should be number one on a list of one. Because that's what he says in the command. He declines to be number one on a list of even three things. He, don't, he won't accept being number one on a list of two things. He insists. No, he demands that he be number one on a list of one. Number one. There is no other. Jesus puts it this way in, John, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. You recall, he says, uh, in, in verse 25, he says, uh, don't be anxious about anything. And we're anxious about all kinds of things, aren't we? I mean, we're, we're, we get freaked out about all kinds of things. <laughs> he says, don't be anxious about anything. Apparently, we have a decision in the matter. Don't be anxious about anything. He says, your father knows you need all these things. And he, he takes you down through that chapter. And in verse 33, he says, Seek first, foremost, only, what? His kingdom, his righteousness. In other words, seek him. Nowhere in that passage does he say, seek, about, seek anything else. He doesn't give a second priority, third priority, fourth priority. He just says, seek him, seek his kingdom, his righteousness. Seek God first, foremost, only and he knows everything else you need, he'll, he'll provide it. Is that cool? That's kind of like a blank check. I don't have to worry about anything. I can trust in his sovereign care. That's what brings me, that's what brings me in my life face-to-face -face with him. God, I can, really, I can really trust you. So I pray, Lord, your will be done, not mine, I really mean it. Now, there are lots of things that scream at us for our attention, aren't there? Lots of things that can distract us. Huh? When God says, have no other gods before me, he is saying, I will, not, I will not tolerate any other gods in my presence. I don't want to be one of many. I want to be the one. That's our challenge as believers. Our challenge is to say, okay, you're it. You're it. I'm going to work to make sure that you are it in my life. You are my God. Julie and I have been happily married for nearly 28 years. I'm proud to say. Many of you know my precious. Now, those of you who know her, think. If I were to tell her, you are my number one wife. There's number two, number three, and number four, but you're number one. Those of you that know her, you think that would cause her great delight. Not hardly. Not hardly. She doesn't want to be number one wife on a list of three or four. She wants to be number one on the list of one. And you are. God is the same way. God is the same way. He demands that we seek him exclusively. That's simply what the first commandment's all about.
So who's number one for you? Who's number one for you? Where are you putting your time? Where are you putting your treasure, your effort, your energy, your focus, your thoughts? What do you talk about the most? The answers will show you who or what is number one in your life, no matter what you may think. The Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Isn't that true? So what my real God is, is evidenced by where I speak, where I place my energy. At, the, at your greatest point of need, at your greatest time of need, false gods will never, ever, ever come through for you. Never. They'll fail you every time. You can have all the money on the earth, but you get a cancer in your throat, that money isn't going to deliver you. You, you gladly, if you love, love life, you gladly give all that money to get rid of that cancer. But chances are it's not going to deliver you. In your time of need, the only one who will ever come through for you is the Lord God Jehovah, Yahweh. He's the only one who will come through for you. That's why we seek him with all of our heart. You will seek me, you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. He's a jealous God. He wants us. He has given everything for us. He's delivered us from the slave market of sin. He has a great purpose for us. He says, look, how many parents do we have? How many parents? You have the best intentions for your kids. You want to build the wisdom into your kids. You want them to listen to you. You want to instruct them. How do you feel when you're talk, trying to talk to your kid and your kid's going like this? Or they're looking at you, and you know, just by the glaze on their eyes, it's going in one ear and out the other. Right? That's kind of like this relationship. God says, pay attention. Pay attention. Now, how, how are we going to do this? I'll give you the game plan on the back of your notes. Notice, just read this game plan with me. How am I going to embrace this first commandment? Five simple steps. First one, pray. That's obvious, right? Pray. Pray for yourself. Pray for your family. Pray for our church. First, that we will have no other gods before him. God, help me see. Help me see that I have no other gods before you. And pray that we could love him with all that we are and all that we have. Fully devoted. Fully devoted. So first, pray. Second, memorize the first commandment. What a novel idea. Memorize the first commandment with your family, your children, if you've got kids. Make it a family exercise. Memorize it with your mini-church. Memorize it in your discipleship group. Memorize the first commandment. Third, take some time to be alone with God. And as you do so, have some rhetorical questions for yourself. Who or what is my God, really? What is the center of my life? What do I rely on? Where do I spend my time? And so forth, as we said. Imagine Jesus asking you the same thing he asked Peter. After the resurrection, John records his words in the 21st chapter of his Gospel. He's going to be reinstate Peter 
But he asks Peter three penetrating questions. What are the three penetrating questions? Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, come on now, you know I love you. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, come on, I love you. Then do what I asked you to do. Be what I asked you to be. You love me? Obey me. Do what I say. Imagine, just get along with Jesus now. Imagine him asking you, do you love me? Madhu, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Then, do you love me? Yes. Then, fourth, meditate and pray. I've given you just a couple of examples of psalms that you can do so. Psalm 63, Psalm 18, just random passages, but you can find other passages in psalms. Just turn the pages and read them and go, ooh, ooh, there's a good one. Ooh, there's another good one. That's all I do. Ooh, that's a good one. That seemed to fit. Make those model prayers. Meditate on God's goodness and God's love. And in those psalms, you, 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 as you read them, you see the expression, I love you. Lord, you are my rock, you're my refuge, you're my safe harbor, you're my everything. And then last, tell others that you love God. Ask yourself, who was the last person I told I love Jesus? I just walked down the street and said, I love Jesus. You're right, you're a nut. I may be, but... You know, we're, 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 we don't tell people. We don't, I, I love Jesus. I love God. Tell somebody. Tell people. Speak about your love for God. Speak about your awe, awe for God, your reverence for God. Tell other people. Family members, brothers and sisters in the church, I love God. Do you love God? I love God. Say it. We can't move on to the other nine, so I'm going to give you all week, because I'm going to move on to number two next week. So I'm depending upon you to work on this this week to be prepared for number two. Fair? Fair. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you again. We love you this morning. Church, say, tell, tell God. God, I love you. Turn to your neighbor. Turn to your neighbor. Say, I love Jesus. All right, wonderful. We praise you, Father. We praise you for your word and for your instruction. We thank you that you are who you are. We thank you that you have saved us. We thank you for the hope that we have. We thank you that you are everything we need. Lord, help us to embrace that reality. Help us to rest in you and to trust you, not to be anxious or fearful about anything. God, that your grace is truly sufficient. Lord, you be glorified through our lives. We love you this morning. Thank you, Father. Some of you may desire prayer this morning for whatever reason. Maybe, maybe you're here, you don't know Jesus Christ, and God's brought you here, maybe for that purpose. And uh, our elders and pastors will be down here in the front by the platform here to pray with you. Some of you may be sick, would like to be prayed for. Others of you uh, just need to make a statement to somebody 
about uh,